Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, we ask this morning that Your presence would be here. We invite You, Lord, to help us understand Your Word. Uh, Father, we are mere men and women who uh, are uh, limited in so many ways from understanding uh, Your truth. We can't comprehend all of it, Father. You're infinite and we are finite. Yet, Lord, You've given us Your Spirit and we're going to rely on Your Spirit this morning to understand Your Word and to apply it to our lives. I pray that this morning would be just a, a precious time of study and of learning, of growing up in, into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> well, we're still in the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to begin turning to Mark chapter 5, if you would. Uh, we've begun this study uh, about last fall or so, and we're going to be going through the entire book. And this should take us through much of the year in 2008. We go verse by verse. Uh, we don't try to bite off more than we can chew. Today we're taking a little bit of a larger portion of Scripture. But I want to turn our attention to Mark chapter 5, and I want to, in particular, show you briefly where we're at as far as on the map. So, in just a moment, you're going to see a map behind me. And the map is representative of, uh, of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee in particular. Now, you'll notice the arrow uh, running across the northeastern corner of that uh, sea. That arrow is going from the land of the Gadarenes that Tom spoke of in his sermon last week where Jesus was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and where He was interacting with Gentiles on that side of the sea. There was very few Jews who lived in that region of the world in the first century. And Jesus had gone there, as Tom mentioned, to try to get some rest and relaxation. But instead, He was uh, having to cast out demons when He got there. And uh, I really urge you, if you were not here last week, to listen to Tom's message um, about Jesus casting out the demons and to see it from the different perspectives that Tom communicated to us last week. It was a great message. And so I urge you to go online and, and check that out at our, at our website. But now Jesus is, is gone from the land of the Gadarenes and He's gone back to the other side. And uh, most likely He's gone to Capernaum. We'll indicate why in just a moment. Back in the boat back to the Jewish side, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee, and a crowd is going to amass. A crowd is going to assemble as Jesus and His disciples return. There's a man by the name of Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And his daughter is sick. And he's gone to the shore and hundreds with him, seeing Jesus' boat come, on, come onto the land. And he's the first one who's going to meet Jesus on scene and say, My daughter is dying. Will you come and help her? But that's not all in our story today. This story today is not just about Jairus and his daughter. In fact, we have a very unique story today. We have um, <clears throat> what's called intercalation in scholarly terms, or what we might say in, uh, in layman's terms, we have a sandwich effect going on today. Because there's going to be two stories that we're going to look at today. And I've, I've used a sandwich to illustrate. How many of you did not eat breakfast this morning? 
Raise your hand if you did not eat breakfast. Okay, you might want to turn away for just a moment, but take a look here. We have a sandwich. Alright, that's a good looking sandwich. Uh, I believe that is a ham sandwich, although it could be turkey. Is it turkey? Okay, it's turkey. And uh, we got the lettuce and the cheese and the turkey and the nice bread, you know. Looks pretty good, huh? All right, anyway. Okay, let's, let's split the sandwich here. Let's split the sandwich. This is what we're going to see today. We're going to see a story at the top, a story at the beginning of our, of our Bible lesson today in Mark 5.21, and then midway through the story, as Jesus is interacting with Jairus, there's going to be a huge interruption. A huge interruption. And an ailing woman, in fact, a, a bleeding woman, is going to get Jesus' attention. And it's going to delay the focus on Jairus and on his daughter. But after Jesus deals with the ailing woman, the story is again going to return to Jairus and his daughter. And so we're seeing somewhat of a sandwich effect, but the reason why we're looking at these as a whole is going to become evident a little bit later on in our message today. Alright, so let's close the, let's close it back up. Let's get that off the screen so that no one has to pay attention to that at all. I don't want you guys getting hungry. Uh, you know, that's the last thing I would ask of you is to be hungry here while I'm preaching. So, uh, alright, that's enough. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Shall we? Mark chapter 5 verse 21 in our text today. <coughs> Mark 5, verse 21. And again, look for the sandwich effect and, uh, and bear with me. It's a little bit of a longer text this morning. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to Him, and He was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at His feet. And he begged Him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, Jairus, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him, that is, pushed into him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. For she said, if only I may touch His clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in Himself that power had gone out of Him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched My clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitudes thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. 
Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, He said to the ruler of the synagogue, He said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Jesus permitted no one to follow Him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw the tumult of and those who wept and wailed loudly. When He came in, He said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Him. But when He had put them all outside, He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with Him and entered where the child was lying. And then he looked, then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. The title of my message today is Healing by Faith, Regardless of Status. Healing by Faith, Regardless of Status. Let's take a look again at verses 21 to 24. 21 to 24. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, A great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with Jairus, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. As we know, Jesus has left the land of the Gadarenes. And He has gone to the north side of the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum. Now, you say, how do we know it's Capernaum? Mark doesn't mention that it's Capernaum. Neither does Matthew and neither does Luke. But what is mentioned is a synagogue. And that the ruler of the synagogue was there. And what we know from archaeology is that most likely the only synagogue that was among the coastal towns on the Sea of Galilee was the synagogue in Capernaum. And so anytime it is mentioned that Jesus is near a synagogue and near the Sea of Galilee, you can be sure that that synagogue is Capernaum. A man named Jairus one of the rulers of this synagogue, comes to Jesus and when he saw Jesus, he falls at his feet and he begs Jesus to save his dying daughter. He says, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her. She may be healed and she will live. Now pay close attention to the man falling at Jesus' feet and begging Him for the life of his daughter. Pay close attention to that because this man of all men in that society, would have been among the least likely to do such a thing. Why? Because Jairus was the ruler, one of the rulers of the synagogue in Capernaum. As a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, 
Jairus was a very well-to-do man. People knew him. He was well-respected in the community. He was a man of answers. Jairus' duties included uh, taking care of the order of the services of the synagogue. Jairus would be the one who would select who would preach, who would read the law that day of worship. Uh, Jairus was one who oversaw the, the business of the synagogue, the benevolent elements of the synagogue perhaps. If there was a dispute in the synagogue, if people were, were arguing over doctrine, over law and, and its interpretation, Jairus would be the one that would stand up and say, this is where we're going to, to stand as a community. This is what we're going to believe. Jairus was a man of answers. And here, Jairus is on his knees begging Jesus for answers. It's very possible that Jairus was the one who permitted Jesus to speak in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, when Jesus was invited to preach at the synagogue in Capernaum. So Jairus knew of Jesus. He knew of Jesus' powerful teaching. And he knew of Jesus' powerful abilities to heal. He had seen Jesus exercise a demon in his synagogue in Mark chapter 1. He had seen Jesus heal the withered hand of a man in his synagogue in Mark chapter 3. And now Jairus was begging Jesus to heal his daughter from near terminal illness. And Jesus agrees. He listens to the man and he says, okay, let's go see your daughter. And all the crowd had gathered and Jesus and Jairus, they, they agree to go and to see his daughter and they begin to walk away and the crowd is excited because here we have Jairus, the most respected man in the community, and Jesus, the most exciting man in the community, and together these two are walking toward Jairus' house about to attempt to heal his daughter. Folks, this was the main event of the community. This was the event of the year, I suspect. All the crowds of Jews welling with patriotism and charging into Jesus. Anybody catch that? Go Chargers. They were, they were excited. This was the main event. And they're bumping into Jesus. And they're bumping into Jairus. And off they go to Jairus' home. It was quite a scene. Imagine the paparazzi following some movie stars. Ah, but the prominence, the prominence of the moment is about to be interrupted. The prominence of this moment is about to be interrupted by a seemingly insignificant woman who is off away from the crowd and watching the scene as it develops. Take a look at verse 25 to 28. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. And she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. 
And when she heard about Jesus, she came before Him in the crowd and touched His garment. For she said, if only I may touch His clothes, I shall be made well. Now, some of this story is, uh, is, is readily apparent, readily easily to, comp- to comprehend. Um, but I would suppose that a casual reading of verses 25 to 28 will miss more than it comprehends. A casual reading will miss a great deal of what is taking place in these verses. And so I want to make us aware of what a casual reader would see and then also what a careful eye would see. A casual reader would see this. They would see the physical problems of this woman. And they would see four things in particular listed, wouldn't they? They would see 12 years of suffering, bleeding, hemorrhaging. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. They would see endless doctor visits as specified in the text. Casual reader would see serious financial problems. The woman has spent all that she had and she is no better off. And they would also see a worsening condition that the the flow of blood within her was getting worse, not better. That's what a casual reader would see. A careful eye would also see this. This woman was unable to bear children. Unable to bear children. Let's move past the physical for a moment. Let's go on to the social and religious stigma. A careful eye would see this of the social and religious stigma. They would see that no children in the first century meant inferior. Inferior woman. A woman who, second class, couldn't have a a male child. Couldn't carry on the name of the family if, if, in fact, she was married, which we don't know. Secondly, this woman was unfit for Jewish worship. According to Leviticus 25, verses 15 to 20, a woman who was experiencing bleeding was an unclean woman. She was not able to fully participate in the synagogue in any kind of uh, temple worship where she to travel to Jerusalem, she was set apart from the community until her bleeding stopped. And if it did not stop, then she was set apart from her community continually. Every day. Every month. Every year. She never walked in to her church, if you will. Because she couldn't. They wouldn't allow her to be there. So thirdly, she was unclean and not to be touched. Anyone that touched this woman, it's not that they couldn't touch her. They could. But anyone who did touch her would then be unclean. And they themselves would have to be set apart from the community for a specified period of time, usually seven days in this case. And they would have to be set apart and undergo ritual cleansing 
so that they could be reintegrated into full worshiping life, the, the full worshiping life of a Jew. Now, I suspect the casual reader won't see those things. But now that we do see them, do you see how significant the situation is for a woman like this? I think that the implications from the physical problems listed above would be exceedingly difficult for a woman. But the implications from the social and the religious stigma that would accompany this woman in this cultural environment would be downright unbearable. If there was ever a woman who despaired of her life, I would argue that it was this woman. Not only was she bleeding every day, but her family and all who knew her viewed her as inferior, unfit, and unclean. She was a second-class, second-rate person. But one day this woman sees Jesus. One day this woman sees the healer. And she watches as Jesus and Jairus converse from afar. And she sees the crowd that's amassing, that's assembling. And she knows that surely, surely someone in that crowd knows her and knows that she's not to be among, among that crowd for fear of contaminating them with her uncleanness. And yet she knows within herself that all she wants is to gain the hearing, a moment with the healer, Jesus Christ. And yet she can't even walk into that crowd for fear of social ostracism. For, for, for fear of people yelling out, unclean, unclean, as she walks toward them. And so I suspect, I, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect she veils her face. I suspect she veils her face, she hides her appearance, and thinking, I want nothing more than to be healed, and, and, and elevating that, that, that mindset above any and all worry of someone finding her out, I think she disguises herself and walks down toward the crowd. Carefully, circumspectly, trying not to touch anyone as she does. And this woman carefully maneuvers her way into the crowd. And as they begin to walk off toward Jairus' home, she begins to carefully maneuver her way toward the front, just behind Jesus and Jairus. Each person she bumped into, unbeknownst to them, she was making them unclean, but no longer did she care. She had suffered too many years to let this moment pass her by. And so she continued to move toward the front, thinking, if only I may touch his clothes, perhaps I shall be made well. And so she reaches out in verse 29, and she verse 28, and she touches the hem of his garment. Verse 29. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. 
She'd been hurrying through the crowds, maneuvering, trying not to touch anyone, but everyone's pushing into one another. She makes her way to the front and reaches out and just touches the hem of His garment. And as she does, the pace with which she was walking, she comes to a a lull and she begins to slow down and she begins to, to feel within herself that that flow of blood has stopped. And she begins to fall back behind Jesus and Jairus. And she begins to consider what has happened within her as the people pass on by, not having the slightest idea of what has happened nor of who the woman is. And for a split second, as she realizes she's been healed, she purposes in her heart to go home quietly. And in accordance with the Jewish law, she purposes to prepare to offer two pigeons on the eighth day of her cleanliness, on the eighth day of the cessation of blood, so that she can be fully reintegrated back into Jewish life and worship. She purposes in her heart to back away quietly so that no one will know and to go home and to wait those seven days and on the eighth day bring the pigeons and back to full life. And no one has to know. No one has to know what she did. No one has to know that what she did was unlawful to achieve her health. No one has to know that she, an unclean woman, had touched a Jewish man and dozens in the crowd no less, making them all unclean. No one would have to know. But one knew. One knew. Verse 30. And Jesus, immediately knowing in Himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, pushing into you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Who touched you? Who touched you? Are you kidding? Everyone is touching you. Everyone is bumping into you. Everyone is pressing into you. The synagogue's, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter is dying and you're pausing and you're stopping and you're turning around and asking who touched you? The disciples are bewildered as well they should be. It's a very unusual um, interruption. But Jesus senses the power within Himself has gone out of Him. He senses that healing has occurred and He wants that healing identified and clarified. Now just for a moment, um, some suggest that Jesus was uh, not limited in His knowledge here. That He fully knew who it was who touched Him and that He had allowed... uh, 
that touch to be efficacious for healing. In other words, that Jesus knew the woman, He knew what she was doing, and He allowed her touch to be a, a, a one that received healing. Others suggest that Jesus, due to his, the limitations of His humanity, was genuinely unaware of who had touched Him and wanted to know who it was that the Father saw fit to heal unbeknownst to the Son Himself. Uh, I, for one, I don't know. And I don't pretend to know. Um, I think anyone who does pretend to know is probably reading a little too much into the text that is not there. Um, we don't know if Jesus, based on the text itself, we don't know if Jesus knew what was happening and asked who touched me for rhetorical purposes, or if the Father in His divine wisdom saw fit to not give that information to His Son, which at times Jesus did not know things, it says in the Scriptures, because of His humanity, <clears throat> and that the Father in His wisdom saw fit for Jesus to only be indirectly aware of this healing. Indirectly aware that when his, the garment was touched, that He sensed within Himself that something tremendous had happened. I don't know. And again, I, I don't pretend to know. And I, I caution us from, from rushing to judgment either way. I, I do. I think it's okay to leave that question unanswered. Um, there will be answers on the other side of this life. And that's sufficient for me. In any event, Jesus knows that power has left Him. And He wants the recipient of that power identified. And He wants the purpose of that power clarified. And so He asks, who touched me? Now, pause for a moment. Imagine you're that woman. The one who has healed you, as you're turning around and quietly slipping out of the crowd, the one who has healed you is asking for you to identify yourself. The one who has healed you is saying, Who is it that has received my healing touch? How is this woman feeling right now? What are the questions swirling about in her head? I suggest to you those questions look like this. Oh no. Is he angry with me? That I touched him without his permission? Oh no. Is he angry with me? that I touched Him and all the crowd making them unclean? Will He summon the crowd to punish me? To condemn me for my crime? Does He wish to make a public spectacle of me? I'm quite confident those are the questions that immediately entered her mind. We're going to see in just a moment, she was fearing and trembling. And so we know she was, con 
she was considerably upset that Jesus wished that she be identified. And yet she knew that she must identify herself. For the healing within her reminds her that the man who has healed her at the very least is a prophet of God. And so to avoid his request, well, that would be to defy the request of God's messenger. Totally unacceptable for her. Not an option. And so with great trepidation, the woman walks slowly through the crowd, which has now stopped. She walks slowly through the crowd, back toward Jesus. Verse 33, But the woman fearing and trembling, shaking, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told Him the whole truth. With tremendous fear in her soul, fear of Jesus, fear of the crowd, fearing punishment, fearing death, fearing stoning at such an act of unlawfulness. Such a gross act of unlawfulness. The woman says, it was me. I was the one who touched you. And not only that, she proceeds to tell Jesus and all the crowd around Him the whole truth. All about her many years of bleeding. Her uncleanness. Her isolation from society. She tells him, of course, of the touching of his garment and of the healing. She lays it all bare for Jesus and the crowd to hear. And then she finishes. And prostrate on the floor, on her knees, before Jesus' feet, with all the crowd now around her, perhaps backing away a little bit for fear that she is contaminated, all of them. And quite possibly compromised the healing of Jairus' daughter because she's touched the very one who was to heal her. And the crowd backs away, looks at the woman. I suspect a pin drop could be heard at that moment. I suspect many were angry with her. Some didn't know what to think. I suspect Jairus was fraught with despair as the situation was delaying any hope of his daughter's survival and could very well have compromised it altogether. And certainly all eyes were on Jesus at this moment to see just what He would do with an unclean woman whose actions were unlawful and reckless. Verse 34, And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Having listened to her story, having seen the courage and the trust of the woman, Jesus calms her fears of punishment. 
He calms her fears of social ridicule. And for all to hear, Jesus calls her daughter. The only time that that title, as an affectionate title, is ever used by Jesus Christ of an individual, of a woman. He says, daughter. And he explains to this woman why it is that she is being given mercy and healing. He says, it's your faith. It's your faith in Me that has made you well. It is your faith in Me that has healed you. Not the magical touch of My garment. It was your faith in Me that allowed God's power to be placed upon you. And in that short statement, Jesus makes it clear for all to hear that God's kingdom power is released upon those who exhibit faith in Christ. I say again, God's kingdom power is released upon those who exhibit faith in Christ. That goes for physical healing. That goes for eternal spiritual healing. As James says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So Jesus is saying here, trusting, believing, having faith in Me availeth much. It isn't the touch of the the garment of a holy man that heals. It isn't the oil that the elders of a church might pour on someone's head that heals. It isn't the rubbing of rosary beads in the Catholic church that heals. It's faith in Christ that heals. Faith in Christ is what heals. There have been a a few instances in which uh, myself and the elders have been asked by people both within and outside of this church um, for healing. Um, This happened not long ago, a few weeks weeks back. And uh, I always admire people who come and ask for healing. Uh, It shows uh, that they're... They're coming in humility, recognizing that the affliction that they have is is one that is beyond them, beyond their control. In some cases, beyond a doctor's control. (coughs) And anytime someone comes and and asks myself or the elders for for, that we might pray that they might be healed, um, or that we might anoint their head with oil in in um, in response to James five and some of the parameters James gives some of the specifications James gives for how it is the elders of a church should go about asking, praying for the healing of a person. <coughs> and uh, any time someone comes and asks for healing, I tell them two things, inevitably. I say, one, we absolutely believe God can heal you. Absolutely, unequivocally. I believe, this church believes, God can heal you. And that that healing... An integral part of it, not the only component, but an integral part on your part is to have faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we ask for this healing. And so one, I say we absolutely believe God can heal you. 
But secondly, I say, equally so, we're very confident that God does not always choose to heal. And that if, while we ask in faith, and while you ask in faith, and while I ask in faith, and while the elders ask in faith for your healing, and while we are believing and confident that God can do this, can take away cancer, can take away leukemia, can heal any disease, any affliction, any emotional impediment, any mental block, while I confidently believe that God can do that, I remind them that if He doesn't do that, that that is not grounds to lose faith in Him. Because you see, this world is wrought with sin and death. And the consequence of living in this world is that our bodies are going to die. They will not live forever. This body will go into the ground one day. And so I remind them that though we ask in faith, if He does not heal, it is no less reason to have faith in Him. It is no less reason, it is no reason to lose or have your confidence rocked because it did not come about. Because we live in a world in which there will be sin and death and disease and sickness. And there is coming a day for each of us where we will die one day. Sometimes God heals and sometimes He doesn't. I've seen the most uh, faith-filled people without healing. And I've seen some folks that I would venture to say probably did not exhibit much faith and were healed. In any event, we know that God is in control. He is sovereign. And whether He chooses to heal or whether He withholds that healing and waits for that final day when you'll be healed, nevertheless, we maintain faith in Christ. An integral component of asking for healing. We don't put our faith in objects. We don't put our faith in symbols. We don't put our faith in other persons. We don't put our faith in, in beads or any kind of relig religious mystical act. We put our faith in Christ. And we ask Him for healing. And we wait for His answer. In our story today, the woman's faith in Christ was efficacious. He says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. You know, that last phrase is significant. He says to the woman, be healed of your affliction. He says to a woman who has been healed of her affliction, be healed of your affliction. It seems to me that, that Jesus is noting that, that the physical malady, while great, 12 years of bleeding, the physical malady, while great, was such a small component of her affliction, of the emotional social, religious stigma that came with her physical affliction. Jesus says you can now let go of that emotional burden 
You can now let go of the social ostracism. You're clean. You can return to the synagogue. You can bear children. Your life has been fully restored. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, lest we forget, friends, this is only the middle of the sandwich. Lest we forget, the huge crowd that is surrounding Jesus right now are not there because of a bleeding woman. They're there because Jesus met Jairus on the seashore, a prominent ruler of the synagogue, and agreed to go to his home and heal his daughter. And so now we return to the story that we began with. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your, your daughter, she's dead. Why bother the teacher any further? Jairus' worst fear had come about. The delay with the bleeding woman had endangered his daughter's chances of survival. Indeed, now it was clear that it had utterly compromised the opportunity for healing. <coughs> Immediately, questions enter Jairus' mind now. Why did we have to wait? Why did an unclean woman deserve Jesus' attention while my daughter, my daughter, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, lie dying? Jairus' faith in Jesus, exhibited by his kneeling before him on the seashore in Capernaum, had now weakened and was failing. And like the, but like the bleeding woman before him, Jesus had compassion upon Jairus and upon his ever-weakening faith. And he turns to Jairus and says in verse 36, notice what he says, As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken by those who had come from Jairus' home, He said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Disregard their advice, Jesus says. Don't listen to them. Do not fear, only believe. Fear will not accomplish what you seek. Had the bleeding woman feared, she would not be healed. So do not fear, Jairus, only believe. Have faith in me. Verse 37. And he permitted, Jesus permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Uh, the parallel, uh, this, this story is paralleled in, in um, I believe, Matthew 9 and Luke 8. Is that right? Luke 8, I believe. And the parallel in Luke suggests that that everyone came to the house. It's not that Jesus stopped everyone and said, okay, now only Jairus, Peter, James, and John. Everyone came to the house. But upon entering the house, Jesus made some restrictions. He said, only Jairus, only his wife, only Peter, only James, and only John may come in with me. 
<clears throat> it would have been difficult <clears throat> to keep the crowd away by now, I suspect. And so all go to Jairus' home quickly. Whispers begin to abound. Did you hear what he said? He told Jairus not to fear, but to keep faith. Could it be that he intends to raise Jairus' daughter to life? While Mark's Gospel doesn't reference it, Jesus had already raised one person to life. A widow's son in the town of Nain. These people may have caught whispers of that. I, um, I suspect they certainly did, actually. And they wondered, is this potentially another resurrection? Another raising to life? Of someone who has died? They arrive at the home, Jesus and Jairus do, and trailing behind them is the crowd. And as they enter the home, they're met with another crowd. The crowd of mourners inside and outside of Jairus' home who weep and wail loudly. And upon seeing the mourners, Jesus says, Why are you making such a commotion? This child is not dead. She's she's sleeping. And immediately the wailing of the mourners turns to ridicule and mockery. The Greek word here for ridicule is kantagalao, and it means to laugh at. They're weeping and wailing, crying out. The family had most likely hired professional mourners, which in that day was, was commonplace, especially for more of a well-to-do family. The greater the, the, greater the number of mourners, the, 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 the greater the number of lamenters, uh, perhaps the greater potential for a healer to come their way, for God to show favor upon them. And He had hired all of these mourners along with family and friends. And they're weeping and wailing. And Jesus enters and says, why are you doing this? Why are you weeping and wailing? Why cause all this fuss? This child is not dead. She's sleeping. And the crying, and the weeping, and the wailing, and the lamenting, laughing. Just like that. They hear what Jesus says and they say, what are you talking about? Their crying turns to laughter. And they begin to mock Jesus. Sleeping? Are you kidding? Sleeping. The girl is sleeping, right? Sure. Sure she is. And they all laugh at Jesus. They get a good laugh. Now clearly the child was physically dead. News of her death had been brought to Jairus and Jesus and was the very reason the mourners were wailing as they were. But you see, Jesus did not view the girl's death as irreversible. So for him, her death was like sleep. A temporary state of being. Not a permanent state of being. Jesus was less than amused by their laughter. So he kicks them out. He says, get out of here. Get out of this home. Verse 40. Second part of verse 40. After they ridicule him. But when... Jesus had put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered where the child was lying. 
Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus took the little girl by the hand and said, Talitha kumi, a phrase that Mark, the Gospel writer here, um, he, he wrote this phrase, Talitha kumi, out in Greek. Um, he, he's writing what's called a Greek transliteration of another language. He's using Greek alphabet characters, Greek letters, to sound out the Aramaic words that Jesus is speaking. Talitha kumi, meaning little girl, arise. Now, why do, I, why do we bring this up? Why bother with something like this? <clears throat> this small phrase, two words in Greek, this small phrase is what enables biblical scholars to zero in on who might have been Mark's original audience. You say, how is that possible? Take a look at this. Number one. Mark's Gospel was not primarily intended to be read by those who spoke Aramaic or the Jews. How do I know that? Well, the reason I know that, the reason scholars know that, is because if it were, there's no good reason why Mark would not write the words in Aramaic. I say again, there's no good reason why Mark would not write Talitha Kumi in the native Aramaic language if he was writing to Aramaic-speaking Jews. And so what that tells us, number two, is this. Thus we can infer that Mark most likely wrote his Gospel with a Gentile audience in mind. Now, I haven't spoken a lot about the audience of Mark, and the reason I haven't is because I wanted to show the clues that scholars use to isolate and to identify how it is that we identify the most likely recipients of a gospel writing or of an epistle, uh, one that maybe perhaps isn't named where it's going, or of any kind of biblical writing. They look for little clues like this one. Two words. And based on these two words, based on how Mark wrote these two words, we can know definitively that his primary audience isn't Jews. If it were Why bother writing it in Greek? Why bother writing it in Greek? And so just a little rabbit trail there for you to see just how it is that we begin to identify that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience. And later on, uh, we're going to note, and we've already seen actually in Tom's sermon, uh, the, the mention of legion, the demon. We can see little clues that show us that Mark is probably writing to a Gentile Christian audience in Rome. In Rome. Little clues. Little things like that that I, I think are fascinating. But back to the real story. We're going to finish up right now. Verse 42. Verse 42 says this. <coughs> Excuse me. Immediately, the little girl arose and walked. For she was twelve years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But Jesus commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. With Jairus looking on in faith, 
Jesus calls out, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. And immediately the little girl arose from the dead. She began to walk around the house. And they were overcome with great amazement. Verse 43, Jesus says, give her, give her something to eat. The body that she has is it's not a resurrected, uh, glorified body. It's still her physical body. She needs nourishment. She needs food. That makes sense. But then He also strictly commands them to those who are witnessing the miracle, to Jairus, to his wife, to Peter, to James, to John, to the little girl. He says, no one should know about this. You catch the irony here. How is no one going to know about this? Everyone outside thinks the girl is dead. Everyone outside, all the whalers, all the crowd, all the lamenters, hundreds if not thousands of people outside the door, and Jesus says, make sure you don't tell anybody. Say, what's, what's going on here? What, what is Jesus talking about? Make sure no one knows. You see, folks, Jesus most likely here, what, what, what is He doing? What is He saying? Most likely, Jesus' intent is to leave the scene, to exit the, the house, to depart from the crowd without making a scene. Like many of the healings before this one, Jesus is often found telling the healed or telling the witnesses of that healing to not tell anybody. Why? Jesus was concerned that the crowd would focus too much on His healing ministry. He was concerned that they would focus too much on the physical miracles and pay little attention to the eternal message of life that Jesus was offering. I refer you to Mark 1, 38, verse 38 of chapter 1, in which Jesus avoids the crowd who want Him to heal them and instead tells Peter, He says, we're going to leave those who want to be healed and we're going to take My message, the preaching, the message of everlasting life to the other villages. Jesus was happy to heal physical maladies. But greater still, He sought to heal human hearts. And so He says, don't tell anyone until I leave. Let me leave this situation. Let me leave this scene. And of course, people are going to know. But let me leave this scene now that I might continue to do the work of my ministry, my purpose. Folks, what can we learn from this today? How can we learn from this uh, sermon? How can we learn from this teaching? Um, a few things. Uh, number one is this. Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus healed two women of radically different social and cultural backgrounds. What that tells me is that God offers healing regardless of age, race, gender, social and religious status. You know, it's only fitting on a day like uh, today, a weekend in which we celebrate the birth of Martin Luther King as a nation, Martin Luther King Jr. We celebrate this man. Why? Because he showed no prejudice. He showed no partiality. He looked at a black man and a white man and he says, the same. 
That's what Martin Luther King Jr. did. And we honor that man this weekend for that. So also, our Lord says, age, doesn't matter. Little girl, grown woman, gender, male, female, social situation, clean, unclean, daughter of synagogue ruler, woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, doesn't matter. Jesus says, I offer healing. I offer healing to those who exhibit faith in me without prejudice, without partiality. There is no people group that Jesus Christ does not wish to heal. There's no race, there's no gender that Jesus does not wish to heal. Our God shows no prejudice. Secondly, Jesus clarified. This is important, friends. He clarified. He, he purposefully clarified that it was the bleeding woman's faith in Him and not simply the touch of His garment that led to her healing. Those who seek physical healing then should put their faith in Christ and not in objects or symbols or persons through which healing may come. If the elders of our church lay hands on someone and they're healed, we should never attribute that healing to those who are laying hands on that person. Ever. That's, that's a symbol of God's power. That's not the nature of God's power. Faith in Christ is what heals. Not any object, symbol, or person. Three, as faith in Jesus is an integral part of physical healing, so also it is absolutely essential in order to receive eternal spiritual healing. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation is found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I urge you, if you've never exhibited faith in Christ, you're not a Christian today and you're wondering, how is it that I can be saved? I tell you plainly, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. There's not any physical act you need to do. You need to believe in your heart in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you will be saved. That is what saves eternally. And that, friends, is what allows the potential to be healed of our physical maladies as well. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this, these precious stories of Your Son. I thank You, Lord, that Jesus shows no partiality. That He loves men and women and children. That He loves all races. Desires to heal all people. No prejudice, no partiality. Father, we thank You that our, our God is a God who, who loves all. We thank You for, for this truth, Lord. I pray, Father, that, that those who are in our congregation today who need healing, who are sick, who have cancer, or who have a mere cold, or who any other physical malady, I pray that they'd have faith in You, faith in Your Son. I pray that they would ask You in faith for healing that You would offer that to them, Father. That You would embolden their faith by offering them that healing. But Father, we, we, we're, we will not lose heart if and when You choose not to heal at times. Because we know confidently that at the end of our days, when this life is over, You will enact 
a kind of healing that is beyond belief. The resurrection of our bodies. That we might live eternally with Your Son, Jesus Christ, because of our faith in Him. Father, it is that healing, it is that eternal healing that we look for more than anything else. We look forward to that day and thank You for that gift. In Jesus' name, Amen.